Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. The reading for today comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. I will be reading in Spanish, and the English version will be on the screen. Luego Dios el Señor dijo, No es bueno que el hombre esté solo. Voy a hacerle una ayuda adecuada. Entonces Dios el Señor formó de la tierra toda ave del cielo y todo animal del campo y se los llevó al hombre para ver qué nombre les pondría. El hombre les puso nombre a todos los seres vivos y con ese nombre se les conoce. Así el hombre fue poniéndole nombre a todos los animales domésticos, a todas las aves del cielo y a todos los animales del campo. Sin embargo, no se encontró entre ellos la ayuda adecuada para el hombre. Entonces Dios, el Señor, hizo que el hombre cayera en un sueño profundo y mientras éste dormía, le sacó una costilla y la cerró la herida. De la costilla que le había quitado al hombre, Dios, el Señor, hizo una mujer y se la presentó al hombre, el cual exclamó, esta sí es hueso de mis huesos y carne de mi carne. Se llamará mujer porque del hombre fue sacada. Por eso el hombre deja a su padre y a su madre y se une a su mujer y los dos se funden en un solo ser. This is God's word. Please be seated. Business, uh, kids, uh, preschool to first grade, you are dismissed for Children's Church. A reminder to parents to either pick up your kids right before or right after you take communion after the sermon. If you're new with us, we're in the middle of a sermon series called A Wonderful Life. Uh, the purpose of this sermon series is to show how uh, when God is our highest good, we understand the glorious news of restoration and the gospel that we are awakened to uh, the wonders of life and truly what we're made for, truly what our purpose is, truly what we're asked to participate in. The first ser sermons, the uh, first four sermons, were really building a foundation uh, for what a wonderful life is and how uh, God is uh, renewing and restoring that wonder in our life. And since last week and uh, the sermons following, we're asking a question essentially, now that you're saved, now that you know the glorious uh, gospel message. What is your salvation for? And how do you continue to display and proclaim this wonderful life uh, to uh, every, area of your, every area of your life? So last week we looked at the mission of the church. Today we're looking at uh, the restoration of relationships. Specifically, we're gonna look at friendships, family, and marriage. Uh, next week we pause. Uh, we're gonna take one Sunday off from the sermon series. One of my elders, Charlie, We'll be uh, going back to a sermon series that we go uh, back and forth with uh, quite a bit called Ask Anything, where there are just a bunch of random questions that uh, we get from you, a congregation, or from our neighbors who might be skeptical of the faith, and we just try to tackle some of these questions. Uh, Charlie, next week, is going to uh, tackle a question that I gave him the way I phrased the question is how do you see God's glory when you're blind? If many of you know Charlie, you know that he 
is uh, legally blind and has been so all of his life, and I've always wanted him to talk about that and talk about how the glory of the gospel shines. I know he wants to broaden it uh, uh, beyond just that specific thing to maybe illnesses and other, other types of things uh, that are difficult to deal with, but I'm really looking forward to Charlie uh, uh, tackling this question that I've asked him before, but now he will be answering that question in front of all of you. Then when we come back from that sermon, uh, we go back and do this series on A Wonderful Life where we'll look at the restoration of work, culture, public life, and then we'll wrap it all up right before the season of Advent begins. So that's the sermon series we're in the middle of right now. Let's go ahead and pray and dive into the restoration of relationships. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this gathering of people. Thank you for how your spirit is still working, that many are here because they have seen and are satisfied in your wonderful gospel. And because they see it, because they savor it, Lord, uh, they want to continue to be nourished by it, continue to be transformed by it. And for those that may be here that are struggling in their faith or no longer identify with this faith, Lord, we pray that your gospel would be uh, so wonderful, so glorious, that it would move them to faith, that it would move them uh, to be a people that wakes up to these realities and that they would be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In college, I became an expert on DTRs. Many of you have heard this story before, but many of you are also pretty new, and you never knew the, the real unique and messed up way that Tracy and I ended up getting together in college, and it really happened after multiple DTRs. If you don't know what a DTR is, it's uh, short for determine the relationship. It's when you and a friend, uh, and, and in my case in college, have to clarify things. Are we friends? Are we more than friends? Where is this relationship going? And you get together and you determine these things. In our journey towards marriage, we had multiple DTRs because I, I had learning to do. I had things to figure out. The first one occurred when we discovered that we liked one another. We were on a trip with some other RAs. We were resident assistants at the time. We were, a group of us were going to Krispy Kreme back when some of those existed around here. They're all closed down. I think it was because the Atkins diet shut those things down uh, back in the day. So there are no more Krispy Kremes around here. Uh, but back then there were, and we traveled there with some other RAs, and we played this kind of truth or dare game on the way there, uh, less daring, more truth. So we'd ask these questions to learn about one another. And one of the questions that I put on the table was, if you could date somebody from the RA staff, who would it be? And since there were other RA people in the, uh, in the car, we decided uh, to write down the names in the event that somebody in the car said one person's name and the other one didn't, because that would have read to an awkward situation, because clearly if you came after somebody that said your name and you weren't planning to say it, that was going to be awkward, but this forced you to kind of stick with your answer. So we all wrote down names, and as we went around, Tracy and I uh, found out that we wrote down each other's name about the other person from the staff that we would, uh, would like to date or be interested in dating. But then I foolishly follow this up in this kind of commons area where uh, students hang out and get uh, something to eat, and we, we came together in that um, spot, and we did a little follow-up, like, what was that all about? And I 
decided, and I don't know, I still to this day don't know exactly what was going on in my mind, but I, in my mind was, I'm going to play this cool. And to me, that meant defining it, that I'm not going to make a big deal out of this. I'm going to be like, you know what? Hey, girl, if you just want to be friends, that's so cool. Like, don't, don't worry about moving this thing ahead. Like, like, we can totally just stay friends. And that's how we have this conversation. And my memory is Tracy left upset because I communicated one thing with the name that I wrote down, but something else when I was in person. And uh, the way I remember it is that she left and she gave me uh, the middle finger. She clarified, but she was upset, but it was more like talk to the hand gesture. Uh, but I, I was really hurt by it, so that I remember it by, by uh, other, other gestures that she made towards me. Uh, but, but I messed it up, and, and now, uh, as a result of this, it went from, hey, we determined the relationship, there was some clarity, to now it's really foggy again. So that led to DTR number two, where I had to follow up and clarify, yes, I don't know what I was thinking, I do like you, I don't want to just be friends, and that was the understanding, until my roommate messed things up. And uh, my roommate at the time uh, was uh, scheduled to go to a short-term mission trip to New York City. If you remember, um, uh, when I was in college, as I remember, this was back right after 9-11 happened, so there were a lot of uh, trips uh, of church groups and college groups were going out to New York City at the time. So he went on that, and Tracy and some others went on that as well. Well, my roommate comes back and says that he likes Tracy, uh, and that he thinks that she likes him too. And I was thinking like, oh, okay, you know, this is, this is a friend of mine, and my, again, the way I was stupidly thinking about this, like, I don't want this relationship to come before a friend, uh, even though I'm not thinking, like, if I, in hindsight, I'd be like, this guy's just temporary. Like, why would I even, like, let him budge in line? But I did, uh, and, and let that uh, kind of say, hey, if you like her and you think that she likes you, just, just go for it. Well, I got really quiet and cold towards Tracy, and she's like, what is going on? I thought we determined the relationship. I thought we liked one another. And uh, she just couldn't figure out why I was very cold towards her, where I'm taking the approach that I'm letting my friend and her uh, go for it. She has no idea that my friend likes her, my roommate likes her, uh, and any of this is happening. So. The way things are clarified for the next DTR is her roommate was talking to my roommate and me on MSN Messenger. That's how old I am, uh, if some of you remember that. Uh, for the younger Gen Z, it's like Facebook Messenger, but like for the OGs in the crowd, okay? So that's, uh, that's what MSN Messenger was. And so clarity came and then, uh, my friend, I think, uh, mentioned to her, Tracy's roommate, like, hey, I, like, Tracy likes me, right? And she's like, no, Tracy likes Brian. And then my roommate, my friend, pivots towards me, gives me the information, and I just, I played it cool again. I was like, okay, okay. But inside, I'm like, yes, this is awesome. Because uh, I was actually uh, concerned that uh, I was going to lose out on this wonderful, wonderful young woman. Um, and so, she and I, I remember, went for a walk, and we had to clarify things again. This is the last, this third DTR was the last one that we would ever have to do. Uh, soon after this, we started dating. Um, and I don't know why I did this. Maybe, uh, maybe 
I had, I was just also a bad friend in, in addition to being bad at dating, but we started to date on my roommate's birthday. Um, <laughs> but it's all cool, he's moved on, I've moved on, we both have wonderful families, it's totally fine. Uh, so that's the love story of how my marriage got started, uh, brokenness and all, and stumbling over my, my own uh, self and all, that's how it, it started. Uh, and you have this weird intersection of like, okay, what is our relationship, friends, more than friends, with the, the confusion factor of my roommate and my friend being part of it. And, and this is one of the realities of life, is navigating relationships uh, and, and navigating what type of relationship you have, because there's a difference between having friends, there's a difference between having uh, a girlfriend and a wife and a family and being parents and kids relating to their parents. These are all types of relationships that we're called to participate in and vocations and callings in our life. And so this sermon is going to be, in a sense, a DTR, but a theological DTR, where we're going to define relationships and how God has created relationships and ordered relationships. We can't look at every relationship under the sun, so I'm narrowing it down to the relationships of friends, the relationship of marriage, and the relationship of family, specifically parenting, to show how every one of these ordinary relationships in your life is participating in the restoration of all things and truly contributing to the wonder of God in your life. So let's first look at the creation of relationships. In Genesis 2.18, which was read today, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. It is not good for man to be alone. There's a general and a specific application of verse 18 that I want to talk about. In general, you could say it's not good for any person to be alone. We're made for community. We're made for fellowship and love and service. That's what we're made for. God didn't create a single person without any ability to enjoy a relationship with another human being. God created us from the start for community, for friendships, for colleagues, and for neighbors. And so before I move on to the specific application of this verse within marriage and family, let's linger on friendship. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. What is that proverb saying? It's saying that a sibling may be there during adversity because you're related. They're there because of a sense of uh, blood-connected obligation. You guys, uh, with your siblings, your brothers and sisters, are connected, and you have an obligation to one another that even our modern-day society understands. Yet, when adversity comes, that does not mean that maybe a sibling would be drawing into you in a time of adversity because of a sense of love. They might just be driven by obligation. Well, it's my brother and my sister. I suppose I should be there to help them out. But this is being contrasted, this kind of like uh, obligation between siblings that is driven by just that obligation in contrast with a friend who is driven by what? Love. Love at all times. A friend is different than a sibling in the sense that a friend may be committed to you in, in thick and in thin, not because of a blood relationship in a family tree, but because of what? Love. It's no wonder why friends can become as close or maybe closer than a brother 
or a sister. And God created friends to serve a beautiful purpose that is distinct from family bonds. When you discover a friend and commit to a friendship, this is part of living a wonderful life. Yet more specifically, in Genesis 2.18, God created humanity in his image as male and female with the ability to be fruitful and to multiply. And so in a specific sense, it's not good for man to be alone. So therefore, in the beginning, there's a wedding. And in the beginning, there is love and a union between male and female who become husband and wife and then father and mother to any children their union produces. This shouldn't surprise us that this is one of the ways that God has chosen to display his image and his glory in the world is through this union between a man and a woman and, and, and how it reflects who God is. One of the themes, if you're, if you're paying attention in the sermon series, is this theme I keep coming back to of unity and diversity. Unity and diversity. And it starts with who God is. God is Trinity. He is one God in three persons. God is unity and diversity. And you also have the Bible, where you have one divine author, yet many human voices, and one redemptive story, yet diverse genres of poetry and psalms and narratives that tell that one redemptive story. Last week, we considered the church, which is one body with many parts, many gifts, many nations and people groups that are part of the one church, many denominations. So, too, it is with family. There is one flesh who is husband and wife. There is one family who is father, mother, and child. And so in God, the persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God loves within himself. And out of that love gives life to the world. And so too within the family, there's a love that gives. A husband gives to a wife. Parents give to children. And family give, and families give to their neighbors, their community, and their church. John 3.16, classic verse in the scripture, God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So the purpose of the husband is to so love his wife that he gives to her and the purpose of a wife is to give to her husband. And through this love that this giving would extend to include children. And family as a relational unit is a unit of loving, giving, and service to one another. Now, one of the ways that this is uh, spelled out in Genesis 2 goes back to uh, uh, Genesis 2.15. And this helps describe a little bit what, me, what uh, the previous verse I read is getting at when it says that it's not good for man to be alone, so therefore God made a helper suitable or fit for the man. Now, many times we get hung up on this title, helper, that the woman is given, and we start to miss the beauty of the passage as, re as, as, as it relates to how a husband and a wife relate to one another. So going back to Genesis 2.15, we see that this is what the man is commanded to do. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Work and take care take on meaning because of this environment of a garden, the Garden of Eden that he is in. So he is responsible for the flourishing and the care of this garden. And these words, work and take care, 
are used to describe what he is doing as a gardener. Later in the Old Testament, however, these same words are used to describe a priest's work in a sacred space, whether a tabernacle or a temple, where he serves and guards the tabernacle, the sacred space. So how does a man who becomes a husband love, serve, and give of himself? He does so like a priest who guards and serves in the sacred space of marriage and family. And when the priest accomplishes this task, others are blessed by the flourishing of this sacred space. So in that sense, the husband is called to be a priest. Yet he cannot do this by himself. It's impossible for him to fulfill this mission by himself. He needs help, which is why God made a helper that is uh, coming alongside in this great mission. Now, modern readers, when they hear this term, they hear it as a way that's devaluing, that being a helper is devaluing to women. But in the Old Testament context and the New Testament context, quite the opposite is happening. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is also called to fulfill uh, a mission, but they cannot fulfill the mission by themselves. The nation of Israel, to be a blessing to the world, needs help. And in the Old Testament, who is the helper that comes alongside the nation of Israel to help fulfill the mission? God. God is the helper. Now fast forward to the New Testament. The church is called to fulfill the mission of making disciples who join in the renewal of the the world. And how are they going to do that? by themselves. They can't, the New Testament says. It's impossible for them to do it by themselves. So Jesus teaches in the Gospel of John that he is going to send a what? A helper, an advocate to help them in this mission, meaning that they cannot do this by themselves. They need the help, in this case, of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the mission. And in the same way, this is what it means for the wife to be the helper to this priest. The priest cannot fulfill his calling to protect and guard the sacred spaces that he's in charge of without the strength and help of a wife of a woman to come alongside of him in the same way that God helps Israel, in the same way that the Holy Spirit helps the church because the church and Israel are weak and incapable of doing this mission without her. So that's what's going on. And this is the ideal. This is what marriage is, that we are called to take responsibility over these relationships, over the space that God gives us in our households, and see that it gives life to one another, and see that it gives life to the world. And in that sense, you have a wonderful life. But This ideal is not what we experience. We don't experience that right now. We experience a frustration of this holy calling in our friendships, in our marriages, and in our families. In the Old Testament, right away, we get to this description that things are broken because sin enters the scene. Right away, we're introduced to a couple of brothers, Cain and Abel, who get into a conflict because of Cain's jealousy which leads to the murder of his brother. There's another family that comes. It's the family that's saved by, from the flood because of their righteousness, Noah and his family. But what happens soon after they go back to dry land? Well, Noah brings shame to his family by getting drunk 
and getting naked and passing out. That's what one of the first acts that he does, this righteous man that's saved from the water of the floods is still a very broken man. And one of his sons chooses to take this moment to humiliate his dad in this vulnerable moment. Then you can go to King David in the Old Testament who starts a relationship by abusing a woman, arranging for the murder of her husband, and then they get married. The scriptures are full of examples of how sin impacts every single relationship. Proverbs 18.24 sticks out to me about friendship. The verse says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. What this is saying here is if you have a lot of shallow relationships but lack one true friend who loves you like a brother or sister, what's the outcome? What does the verse say? Well, such a situation leads to ruin. That's how high the stakes are of having a uh, relationship connection that's shallow, that lacks friendship, that it leads to ruin. And this seems extreme, but even in our modern moment, can't we say that this is what's taking place? There's so many articles and pieces that I've read over the years that, uh, that describe the rise in depression, the de rise in loneliness, the rise in isolation. And all this was taking place even before a pandemic hit in 2020. And there's many causes of it, but a lot of these pieces are very honest that one of the things that's contributing to this is that there is a famine of friendship in our modern society. People do not have deep friends. People don't have a lot of people that when something goes down in their life at 3 a.m. in the morning that they have somebody that they would not hesitate to call and lean into that relationship. And they are going through life without that. And a lot, a lot of modern people, too, move around so they don't have family. And then they also find themselves in a situation without friends. And when that happens, the scriptures are so honest. If you go through life without any deep and meaningful friendships, it will lead to your ruin. This is how our relationships are broken in this world. But there's good news of restoration in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the ministry of Jesus, the Lord is restoring relationships just as he is restoring broken bodies. He calls disciples to follow him as Lord, yet he says to him in John 15, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Christ's love chooses imperfect disciples to follow him, yet they are much more than disciples. They're friends. And why are they friends? Because look at the nature of Christ's love for them. He chooses them and makes a commitment to them. He sacrifices for them, even laying down his own life. And he shares everything he learns from God the Father to them. Now this last point might seem a little weird. Why is that a mark of friendship? Why is that a mark of love for a friend to share uh, the Father's business, in this case, with his friends? Have you ever had a coworker that move towards friendship because it started to go from a relationship where you and your coworker you can talk shop all day, you can talk about the nature of your work, but then all of a sudden he starts opening up to you. 
about the things that keeps him up at night, about his hopes, his aspirations, his struggles, he lets you in a little bit more on his business, and you do the same for him. That's one of the key markers that your colleague has moved from being a colleague to a friend because you're letting one another in on life a little bit more. Or maybe to give more of a negative example that might have happened to you that proves the same point. Have you ever had what you thought was a very deep friendship uh, that was going to stand the test of time and then a significant thing went down in that person's life and they didn't let you in on it? You found out after the fact. When that happens, isn't it hurtful? It's so hurtful because you're like, I thought we we're friends. Because the nature of friendship is we disclose things to one another. We let one another know what is going on. And so, too, with Christ. He shows his friendship to us in that he doesn't keep his father's business to himself, but he lets us know God's plans for us because we are Christ's friends. We also, I think, have a unique situation in this church because many of us are far away from our families, and so many of us have become extended family through a growing network of friendship. Proverbs 27.10 talks about something like this. It says, do not forsake your friend or friend of your family, and do not go to your relative's house when disaster strikes you. Better a neighbor nearby than a relative far away. That seems like an odd proverb. There is a proverb a little bit earlier that talks about an obligation that we have that when disaster strikes, we care and look out for our family. But the nature of Proverbs is that it's looking at general wisdom in different life circumstances. So this proverb is picturing a circumstance where you don't live by your, fam your family. Your family's far away. So what happens if your family is far away and disaster strikes? Proverbs 27.10 says that you have an obligation to your friends and your neighbors who live nearby. Why? Because that are the relationships that you have in proximity to you. And again, this is another example of how, how valuable friendship is and how friendship can take the form and intensity that household and families have as well, that we have a high obligation to one another, to love one another, to commit to one another, and to disclose our very lives to our friends. And that's what we are called to, called to do. So if you really want a wonderful life, part of that includes friendships. And if you want to contribute to the restoration of friendship, then you push back on these realities of flighty friends that abandon one another and have shallow relationships and replace them with committed, loving, sacrificial, and transparent relationships because that is the way that you restore these friendships. Christ has restored friendships, but not only friendships, but he's also restoring family and marriage. Concerning family, uh, Jesus is correcting terrible teachers in his day that tried to justify dishonoring one's father and mother. It's also very significant that in Jesus' ministry, he valued kids. He heals sick, sick children. He raises them from the dead. And he even invites children to approach him and in his ministry. Concerning marriage, Jesus honors marriage by showing up at a wedding party in Canaan. He teaches against lust and adult, adultery. And he teaches against divorce. And in fact, Jesus reveals to us a deeper mystery of what marriage is. Paul captures this in Ephesians 5. For this reason... 
A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So how a husband loves his wife and how a wife responds to her husband displays a profound mystery to the world. And Paul says that mystery is the relationship between Christ and the church. The relationship within marriage between a husband and a wife is not just one of priest and helper, but Christ and the church. There's a reality that so many in the world might hear what the gospel is, but want a tangible expression of it. And one of the things that God has ordained to be a tangible expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world is how a husband and a wife love and respect one another. That's what marriage does, and that's how it contributes to the restoration of all things. And even if you go to some of the verses prior to the ones I read, it, it gets very practical. One of the things that uh, Paul charges the husband with is that he would love his wife as his own body, grounding that charge in the theology that the two have become one flesh, because no man, if he loved his body, would ever neglect it. That's his purpose. And one of the things I've talked about many times in uh, premarital counseling that I've done over the years is how that just really applies itself in the nitty-gritty ordinary things of life. So I usually turn to the, to, to the man and say that means that if you are cold, if you are hungry or you are bored, what do you do? Well, you get a blanket, you get something to eat, you find something to do. But when that impulse comes on you in marriage, your instinct in that moment shouldn't just be for self anymore, but for service and love towards another. You are called to give, not just of self, but to someone else right now. So when you are cold, in that moment, don't just think about you being cold, but I wonder if my wife is cold. Maybe I should get her a blanket. If you are hungry, don't just think about your own hunger, but ask your wife, can I get you something to eat? If you are bored, don't just think about your own boredom, but wonder, is she bored? Does she need something to do? Does she, does she want to go on a date with me, or does she need a break from me and need to go out with the ladies? Whatever it is, you lean into marriage in such a way that it's no longer about you, but about another. And when you do this, you display the gospel to the world. In everyday marriage and how you relate to one another, God is forming you to be a people who reflect the gospel to the world, and he is reforming and restoring the world through your marriage. Now, I want to linger on one more point before I conclude this sermon, and that is passing on the faith to the next generation as another way to restore relationships, but also to pass on the wonderful gospel to the next generation and our responsibility for that. Our church is full of a lot of young rugrats, a lot of them. Uh, we have a huge children's ministry, and right now it's this, this complicated thing where uh, we're just getting children's ministry back on, and I know some families are, are tuning in at home with the rugrats as they're waiting for uh, vaccines to be available, but that's kind of the nature of our church. We have a lot of young families, and so I want to lean into this uh, point a little bit more before I conclude the sermon because it is a very big deal and we as a church, a household of faith, have a huge responsibility in our relationship to our children and passing down the faith to the children. Now this is a very shortened talk that I've given um, in other areas based on 
uh, a book that I recently read by Christian Smith. It's called um, Keeping the Faith. He's a sociologist that looks into why do some kids, as they get older, keep their faith, and why do some kids lose it? And it raises the question, what shapes the faith of a child more than anything? And you can list a bunch of things that you might say, a local church, youth group, Christian schools, mission trips, summer camps, Sunday school, youth ministers, friends and siblings. Those might be answers that you all give about what shapes the faith of a child and starts to ensure that they keep that faith. But the answer that Christian Smith gives based on his research is that all these things have an impact, but none of them are primary. None of them are even close to being the most significant impact on the faith of a child. The most significant impact on a child's faith is the parents. And it's not even close uh, when you look at some of the, the data. But then it raises the question, okay, if, if there's a lot of responsibility on us as parents, to form and pass on the faith to the next generation, how do we do that? And Christian Smith gives a bunch of different things to, to focus in on, but I want to focus on four of them as a way to guide us on practical ways of passing on the faith to our kids and passing on the, a wonderful life to our kids. The first thing to note if you are a parent uh, is that your faith matters very, very much because of the impact it has on your children's faith. Parents who have authentic, genuine, and natural faith is noted by your kids, even if you don't ever say it, because they are watching, and kids can sniff out whether you're lukewarm or whether or not you're fake. You could do all this religious activity, but if it's not authentic, if it's not in your heart, if it's not a passion of your life, your kids will note it. So one of the primary things that you can do as a parent if you are concerned about passing on your faith is to make sure that your faith is real and that it's healthy and that you are taking care of it. You have to take care of your own faith if you are going to have the energy and the ambition and the example to pass on to your kids. So that's number one. Number two is the style of parenting that you embrace. And he advocates for a style of parenting, an authoritative style of parenting. How he defines that is that it's a type of parenting that balances authority and love. That's the type of parenting that helps kids flourish, that you assert your role and your authority as a parent because as a parent, it's your job to set clear expectations, boundaries, and practices related to life and faith. Yet, you, how you do that matters. And parents that exhibit that authority along with love, warmth, humility, care, and support balances out that authority because it shows your kids that the reason you are giving them this guidance is driven by your love and care for them. This is contrasted with other ways of doing parenting. An authoritarian style of parenting is being strict without warmth. You have all the boundaries and rules, but you have no love. Or a permissive style of parenting, which is warm, but has no boundaries. You're a good friend, but you give no guidance as a parent. Or a passive parenting style, which is neither warm nor gives boundaries. It's passive. But parents that are both showing their authority as parents by giving expectation boundaries and practicing the faith, but it's infused with love, warmth, and humility, help to create an environment where real faith can grow in their child's heart. Number three, 
You have routine faith conversations. That you display the importance of faith in your everyday and weekly life. That you don't primarily just do it by going to services, oh, that's important, or family devotionals, or that's, that's definitely important as well. Those regular habits are very important. And one of the things I noted uh, in, in a lot of uh, college students over the years where I've ministered to them and they've come back to the faith in their college years, uh, sometimes their testimony would include the, you know, the fact that, like, well, my parents were kind of inconsistent with reading the Bible and taking us to church and having faith conversations with me, and that had an impact on them where it communicated, well, it must not be that big a deal if other things keep interrupting these rhythms. But routine faith conversations, uh, not merely going to church and not merely having household devotionals, but having faith conversations deeply integrated with all those things contribute to a child's faith. It's the conversations that spontaneously erupt when you're walking with your kids in the park or playing with them, and they have these deep and insightful questions for you. Or maybe they hear something that I say and they lean into it with a little, with a little bit more curiosity, enthusiasm. Like Pastor Brian mentioned, you know, a union of a husband and wife. What does that mean? And then you go there and you talk about it. And not only talk about the birds and the bees, but how it relates to the greatest, greater mystery of the gospel in a way that you know that your kid can understand. And it's in these like common spaces that spontaneously faith questions erupt and that they're also cultivated and nourished. It's what exactly Deuteronomy 6, 4 is saying when it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These are the commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. And how are you to impress them on your children? Talk about them. When you sit at home and you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up, Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. It's just everywhere, everywhere in daily life and faith. It's, it's yes, going to church. It's yes, having household devotionals. But it's just so saturated that your kids just note that anytime, it doesn't have to just be in a sacred space, but anytime we can talk about the things of God because that's just what we do as a family. And in those moments, you let your kids explore their questions, express their doubts, and give their ideas about this faith while you guide them in both a loving but also a way that guides them to the truth. Number four, that you channel your kids into relationships and environments that reinforce the faith. Now, the local church and mentors and friends may not hold the same influence in a child's faith as the parents, but they can certainly assist a parent in that endeavor, and they can also uh, help with this pursuit. That parents are not alone, and having mentors, having pastors, having friends, that they develop intergenerational friendships with their peers and with others, all these things help as they see the faith of Christ displayed in a unique way in, in, in people and individuals outside of their parents. And in doing these things, none of it guarantees that your kids will keep the faith, but it certainly could be a means of grace in helping you along those ways. So anyways, I wanted to linger there 
a little bit because we have a lot of the next generation here and it's important that we start to learn together on what this looks like and how can we cultivate a life of faith in the next generation. In fact, at the top of our certificates that we give to families during child dedications, this verse is at the top of it. Psalm 78.4, we will not hide them from their children, that is the wonderful works of God, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. And when we do this with the next generation and we lean into the faith with them, we are declaring to them the wonderful works of God and inviting them into the restoration of all things and inviting them into the wonderful life. And as we said in this sermon and as we've seen in this sermon, it's not just the relationship between a parent and a kid that is joining God in the restoration of relationships but as other relationships as well. Our friendships, our marriages, our families, our households all exist for the same purpose, to declare and to display to one another the wonderful works of God, to satisfy our souls in those things, and then that, that benefit that we receive by knowing and proclaiming and enjoying the wonders of God are then turned outward and we give we give to one another when we give to our neighbors and we give to the world this wonderful restoration project that we are invited to because this is one of the significant and ordinary ways that the gospel is making an impact on your life. Look at the relationships in your life, brothers and sisters. The friends that you have, the family that you have, the kids, the, the spouse, all these things. These relationships are not detached from the work of God in the world. In fact, they are integral. They're a big part of how God is restoring all things and making it on earth as it is in heaven. So when you scatter from this space once again and back into these relationships that dominate your life, invest in them, lean into them, nourish them, and in doing so, continue to participate in the restoration of all things.